Chapter 7 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 7 The End of the Tether. Stern went down smirking and apparently not at all disconcerted, but the engineer Massey remained on the bridge, moving about with uneasy self assertion. Everybody on board was his inferior, everyone, without exception. He paid their wages and found them in their food. They ate more of his bread and pocketed more of his money than they were worth, and they had no care in the world, while he alone had to meet all the difficulties of ship-owning. When he contemplated his position in all its menacing entirety, it seemed to him that he had been for years the prey of a band of parasites, and for years he had scowled at everybody connected with the Safala, except, perhaps, at the Chinese firemen who served to get her along. Their use was manifest. They were an indispensable part of the machinery of which he was the master. When he passed along his decks, he shouldered those he came across brutally, but the Malay deckhands had learned to dodge out of his way. He had to bring himself to tolerate them because of the necessary manual labour of the ship which must be done. He had to struggle and plan and scheme to keep the Safala afloat, and what did he get for it? Not even enough respect. They could not have given him enough of that if all their thoughts and all their actions had been directed to that end. The vanity of possession, the vainglory of power, had passed away by this time, and there remained only the material embarrassments, the fear of losing that position which had turned out not worth having, and an anxiety of thought which no abject subservience of men could repay. He walked up and down. The bridge was his own, after all. He had paid for it and with the stem of the pipe in his hand he would stop short at times as if to listen with a profound and concentrated attention to the deadened beat of the engines, his own engines, and the slight grinding of the steering chains upon the continuous low wash of water alongside. But for these sounds the ship might have been lying as still as if moored to a bank and as silent as if abandoned by every living soul. Only the coast the low coast of mud and mangroves with the three palms in a bunch at the back grew slowly more distinct in its long straight line without a single feature to arrest attention. The native passengers of the Safala lay about on mats under the awnings. The smoke of her funnel seemed the only sign of her life and connected with her gliding motion in a mysterious manner. Captain Wally on his feet, with a pair of binoculars in his hand and the little Malay serang at his elbow, like an old giant attended by a wizened pygmy, was taking her over the shallow water of the bar. This submarine ridge of mud, scoured by the stream out of the soft bottom of the river and heaped up far out on the hard bottom of the sea, was difficult to get over the alluvial coast having no distinguishing marks, the bearings of the crossing-place had to be taken from the shape of the mountains inland. The guidance of a form flattened and uneven at the top like a grinder-tooth, and of another smooth saddle-backed summit, had to be searched for within the great unclouded glare that seemed to shift and float like a dry fiery mist, filling the air, ascending from the water, shrouding the distances, scorching to the eye. In this veil of light, the near edge of the shore alone stood out almost coal-black with an opaque and motionless solidity. 
Thirty miles away, the serrated ranges of the interior stretched across the horizon, its outlines and shades of blue faint and tremulous like a background painted on airy gossamer on the quivering fabric of an impalpable curtain let down to the plain of alluvial soil. And the openings of the estuary appeared, shining white like bits of silver let into the square pieces, snipped clean and sharp out of the body of the land bordered with mangroves. On the forepart of the bridge, the giant and the pygmy muttered to each other frequently in quiet tones. Behind them, Massey stood sideways with an expression of disdain and suspense on his face. His globular eyes were perfectly motionless, and he seemed to have forgotten the long pipe he held in his hand. On the foredeck below the bridge, steeply roofed with the white slopes of the awnings, a young Lasker seaman had clambered outside the rail. He adjusted quickly a broad band of sail canvas under his armpits, and throwing his chest against it, leaned out far over the water. The sleeves of his thin cotton shirt, cut off close to the shoulder, bared his brown arm of full-rounded form and with a satiny skin like a woman's. He swung it rigidly with the rotary and menacing action of a slinger, the fourteen-pound weight, hurtled, circling in the air, then suddenly flew ahead as far as the curve of the bow. The wet thin line swished like scratched silk running through the dark fingers of the man and the plunge of the lead close to the ship's side made a vanishing silvery scar upon the golden glitter. Then after an interval the voice of the young Malay uplifted and long drawn declared the depth of the water in his own language. Diga stenga, he cried and after each splash and pause gathered in the line busily for another cast. Diga stenga which means three fathoms and a half. For a mile or so from seaward, there was a uniform depth of water right up to the bar. Half three, half three, half three, and his modulated cry, returned leisurely and monotonous like the repeated call of a bird, seemed to float away in sunshine and disappear in the spacious silence of the empty sea and of a lifeless shore lying open, north and south, east and west, without a stir of a single cloud shadow or the whisper of any other voice. The owner-engineer of the Safala remained very still behind the two seamen of different race, creed and colour, the European with the time-defying vigour of his old frame, the little Malay, old too but slight and shrunken like a withered brown leaf blown by a chance wind under the mighty shadow of the other. Very busy looking forward at the land, they had not a glance to spare, and Massey, glaring at them from behind, seemed to resent their attention to their duty like a personal slight upon himself. This was unreasonable, but he had lived in his own world of unreasonable resentments for many years. At last, passing his moist palm over the rare lanky wisps of coarse hair on the top of his yellow head, he began to talk slowly. A leadsman you want. I suppose that's your correct mailboat style. Haven't you enough judgment to tell you where you are by looking at the land? Why, before I had been a twelve-month in the trade, I was up to that trick, and I'm only an engineer. I can point to you from here where the bar is, and I could tell you besides that you are as likely as not to sticker in the mud in about five minutes from now, only you would call it interfering, I suppose. And there's that written agreement of ours that says I mustn't interfere. His voice stopped. Captain Wally, without relaxing the set severity of his features, moved his lips to ask in a quick mumble, 
How near, Sirang? Very near now, Tuan, the Malay muttered rapidly. Dead slow, said the captain aloud in a firm tone. The Sirang snatched at the hands of the telegraph. A gong clanged down below. Massey, with a scornful snigger, walked off and put his head down the engine room skylight. You may expect some rare fooling with the engines, Jack, he bellowed. The space into which he stared was deep and full of gloom, and the grey gleams of steel down there seemed cool after the intense glare of the sea around the ship. The air, however, came up clammy and hot on his face. A short hoot on which it would have been impossible to put any sort of interpretation came from the bottom cavernously. This was the way in which the second engineer answered his chief. He was a middle-aged man with an inattentive manner and apparently wrapped up in such a taciturn concern for his engines that he seemed to have lost the use of speech. When addressed directly, his only answer would be a grunt or a hoot according to the distance. For all the years he had been in the Safala, he had never been known to exchange as much as a frank good morning with any of his shipmates. He did not seem aware that men came and went in the world. He did not seem to see them at all. Indeed, he never recognised his shipmates on shore. At table, the four white men of the Safala messed together. He sat looking into his plate dispassionately, but at the end of the meal would jump up and bolt down below as if a sudden thought had impelled him to rush and see whether somebody had not stolen the engines while he dined. In port at the end of the trip, he went ashore regularly, but no one knew where he spent his evenings or in what manner. The local coasting fleet had preserved a wild and incoherent tale of his infatuation for the wife of a sergeant in an Irish infantry regiment. The regiment, however, had done its turn of garrison duty there ages before, and was gone somewhere to the other side of the earth, out of men's knowledge. Twice, or perhaps three times in the course of the year, he would take too much to drink. On these occasions he returned on board at an earlier hour than usual ran across the deck balancing himself with his spread arms like a tightrope walker and, locking the door of his cabin, he would converse and argue with himself the livelong night in an amazing variety of tones, storm, sneer and whine with an inexhaustible persistence. Massey, in his berth next door, raising himself on his elbow, would discover that his second had remembered the name of every white man that had passed through the Safala for years and years back, he remembered the names of men that had died, that had gone home, that had gone to America. He remembered in his cups the names of men whose connection with the ship had been so short that Massey had almost forgotten its circumstances and could barely recall their faces. The inebriated voice on the other side of the bulkhead commented upon them all with an extraordinary and ingenious venom of scandalous inventions. It seems they had all offended him in some way, and in return he had found them all out. He muttered darkly, he laughed sardonically, he crushed them one after another, but of his chief, Massey, he babbled with an envious and naive admiration. Clever scoundrel. Don't meet the likes of him every day. Just look at him. Ha! Great! Ship of his own. Wouldn't catch him going wrong. No fear, the beast. And Massey, after listening with a gratified smile to these artless tributes to his greatness, would begin to shout, thumping at the bulkhead with both fists, Shut up, you lunatic! Won't you let me go to sleep, you fool? But a half-smile of pride lingered on his lips. Outside, the solitary Lasker told off for night duty in harbour, 
perhaps a youth fresh from a forest village, would stand motionless in the shadows of the deck listening to the endless drunken gabble. His heart would be thumping with breathless awe of white men, the arbitrary and obstinate men who pursue inflexibly their incomprehensible purposes, beings with weird intonations in the voice, moved by unaccountable feelings, actuated by inscrutable motives. End of chapter 7